I'd be okay if it weren't for you. <laughs> I'd be out of here if it weren't for you. Oh, are you still trying to fool yourself that you're cured? They'll never let you out of here. How could they? After what you become. I only exist because of you. You bring me here. You manifest me in your mind. Your guilt is going to follow you, Tina. As long as your body just casts a shadow. <laughs> Why can't you just leave me alone? I don't like you, Dr. Cruz. Oh, oh, oh my. Oh, my. Well, why don't you just tell me how it really is? So it's time for a review of a much-anticipated Friday the 13th fan film, Roseblood, by Peter Anthony Productions. Release date to YouTube, November 29th, 2021. This is a continuation of Friday the 13th Part 7. The cast includes Lar Park Lincoln, Terry Kaiser, and Kevin Spertus, who are Dr. Cruz, Tina, and Nick in Friday 7. So we're going to get into everything here. Some background on the film from information I gathered. It was, uh, they raised $52,000 from fans' donations. They shot this movie in eight days, mostly 16-hour days. From idea to script to fundraising to casting and then shooting was all complete in 110 days. It was shot this year, released this year, and they built a $200,000 building. That whole facility they were in, they built that for the film. So before I get into this review, a lot of people who are listening probably don't even know who the Skeleton Crew is, the podcast, who I am, or anything like that. So just for some insight about myself, I was the lead host of the Skeleton Crew from 2012 to 2020. I retired in October of 2020, and I came back in October 2021. And now I do a solo cast, which you're listening to right now, called Bare Bones. We are big on Friday the 13th. One of the jokes about our show is that it's a Friday the 13th show. We almost never go a show without saying those words. We have about, I'd say, 25 or 30 Friday the 13th based shows in our catalog, whether it be interviews with Ted White, Ethel from Friday 5, Demon from Friday 5, Scott from Friday 2, Officer Dorf. Adrian King, you know, the list goes on and on. We did a lot of interviews. We did a lot of specials. I've met and talked to hundreds of people that were in the Friday the 13th movies. I got Lauren Marie Taylor to be in my Friday the 13th fan film for a scene, who was Vicky from part two. The biggest show we've ever done for Friday the 13th is show number 88 of the Skeleton Crew, Friday the 13th versus Halloween franchise. So we battled those two franchises out. Those are big shows, so, you know, I'm kind of known as a Friday the 13th guru. I ran a message board back when that was popular called Crystal Lake After Dark. 
and I kind of gave that up when social media changed, and I moved on to podcasting in 2012. So here I am today. Uh, I also myself shot a Friday the 13th fan film last year. It was released on Christmas Eve or Christmas Day. I forgot what I did. Uh, it's called Friday the 13th Nine Lives, but that was totally different. That was shot on a cell phone with no script, no laid out plot, no actors, nothing like that. Just a bunch of friends and uh, a good Jason outfit, a cool mask, and uh, some committed people who love Friday the 13th, and that's all it was. And uh, it also seems to be well-received. It has over 800,000 views on YouTube, and uh, the year anniversary is coming up, obviously. And uh, So just wanted to give those credentials so that you know where I'm coming from with this whole review. So I take this kind of thing, I wouldn't say seriously, I still am pretty lighthearted about all this stuff, but I definitely uh, put thought into it, and I definitely care. Uh, and I definitely am disappointed when something's not done right, and I'm thrilled when things are done right. You know, so leading into this movie, let's start off with the beginning, before we even get into what took place on screen. So, the concept of it, I thought in the beginning was strange to me. Friday the 13th Part 7, I, I wondered why a sequel to that movie in particular, like, it's not a favorite of mine if I were to have like a top four Friday the 13th. You know, two is my favorite, and then four, and then, I guess, three, and then, um... I was back and forth with part seven. Growing up, I thought it was great, because Jason looks so amazing. I totally bought into the whole thing. It has the sleeping bag kill, cool stuff, uh, things are flying around the house. You know, wow, look at that. Then as I got older, I was like, yeah, this one's really not that good. The writing kind of sucks. The characters are assholes, and telekinesis? Like, seriously? Like, were you throwing everything at us with the kitchen sink at this point? Like, literally throwing the kitchen sink? I think Tina threw the kitchen sink. But, you know, so I went through that phase where, at this point, now Jason's the only good thing about that movie. And then, you know, as I got a little bit older, uh, I said, well, listen, it's a fun movie. It's a pretty solid entry. It's definitely watchable. It's not torture. It's fine. That's kind of where I am now. Did I still think um, a sequel, that we, that we needed a sequel about it? I, I didn't think about it. I mean, who would do a sequel about it? It's been 30 years, right? So, you hear about this movie, and you hear that they're bringing back Cruz and Tina, and the one thing, and I've been reading comments that, you know, people are weirded out about, is that these people were not in the movie enough. I don't know. It, I'm not sure if it was presented to people as if that they were going to be in this entire movie or whatever. I'm not big on watching trailers. And when I saw the trailer, I did watch it once. I don't like to watch trailers of movies I'm definitely going to watch anyway, because I don't want any spoiler. So the question is, did the trailer lead people to believe that the whole movie had uh, these three actors from Friday 7 in it? Because, um, you know, some people thought they would be in the entire movie. Uh, so the question is, did they do it right by just having them do their thing? You know, they're much older now. They aren't going to go crazy here. So you have them, you set up the present day, and then you take a blast from the past, which I think was made clear that a younger version of Tina would be in this movie, and that's what we would see for the duration of the movie. I, I didn't exactly know that, but I got to say, as it was happening... I kind of forgot that Lar Park Lincoln and, and Terry Kaiser and all them were in this movie. I just didn't, I stopped thinking about it because I kind of got engaged in the story. So that didn't occur to me that they weren't in it 
until probably like 45 minutes in, it, it clicked, it dawned on me like, hey, they haven't like flashed forward in a long time. Yeah, like I thought it would go back and forth since a lot of uh, movies do that now, you know? But yeah, that didn't bother me as much. Now, as I go through this, I'm gonna mention things I liked, things I thought could be different, and things that I didn't understand. And this goes on in every review. I'm not gonna treat this any differently because it's a fan film or anything like that. If I don't understand something and you have the answer, then leave it in the comments, explain it. If I didn't understand one thing or another, say, oh, well, it's because of this or it's because of that. You know, uh, I don't grasp everything on first or second watch, and that's all I really got with this. I was trying to get this review out in a timely manner, but I think I got the gist. So, um, the one thing I would say, the girl who played the 1988 Tina, you gotta remember, the I think the part seven is like, what, 1987? So, 1988, Tina is the Tina from a year after the events of Part 7. So, as far as she goes, um, the only thing I, I wished about her is that I wish they'd done her hair up a little bit more to look like uh, Tina from Part 7, because I think she, she sort of resembled her enough that if they, if they did the hair, like the crimp or whatever you call that kind of hairstyle, if, if she did that and it wasn't so, like, long and different only a year later, I think uh, it, it would have driven it home better for me. As far as her acting goes, the whole portrayal and the writing of Tina, that I thought was really solid. Uh, I thought the acting was good. Um, the original Tina was a little more mousier and a little more panicky and like everything was like, you know, she's always, uh, one thing I always said about Friday 7 is that Tina was always like crying. She always looked like she just is about to burst into tears or just got done doing it. This girl was a lot more subdued that way. She didn't come off like so high strung. I guess it explains a lot of other things I was almost wondering too. So, so I guess we can get into the movie now. Uh, remember guys, spoilers, you should have watched this before you heard this review, definitely. So this is a 90 minute movie, full length movie. So this movie starts off, they show Jason in Crystal Lake dangling there, uh, you know, as we all have seen many times uh, watching these movies. Uh, very tongue-in-cheek intro, uh, very reminiscent of Part 7. You know, there's a legend around here, a killer, killer buried but not dead. They did that whole thing, very tongue-in-cheek. Shows they're having fun with it. So it kicks off with Tina and Dr. Cruz in a room. I will say, I wish she did refer to him as Bad News Cruz at one point. So it turns out he is all in her mind. Even though he is still aging, he's only in her mind. <laughs> well, I was expecting a little reference to that. I thought she was going to say, I thought he was going to go, look, you've even, you know, like, I'm, I'm in your mind, Tina. And look, you even aged me just so, just so we could grow up together or like, whatever. Like, because <laughs> obviously he doesn't age after he gets killed in part seven. So it's funny. I thought that, I thought that was going to be brought up, but I thought Terry gave a great performance at his age. I thought he totally committed to this. So the movie is laced with the music of Friday the 13th Part 7, the Harry Manfredini score, which is actually a great idea, especially if you're trying to drive home the point that this is a sequel to Part 7. Uh, and a lot of times when you do something like that, it just sounds unnatural and it doesn't marry what's on screen, when you, especially if you take something from 30 years ago uh, and you put it to something from today. But it actually worked. I'd say all the time. I never heard any score that jumped out at me as um, unnatural or anything. 
it even hit a lot of the right beats. A lot of the times the score really, most of the time, the score really added to the scene. We then flash back to young Tina with her doctor. Uh, so like I said, this takes place one year after the events of part seven. So this big thing, Tina moves a coin and everyone is like ecstatic about it. Now, the one thing I was confused about with this part was why is this doctor and everyone he tells so excited about this? Did she not tell them what she did uh, a year ago? I mean, it seemed like they had reports and all this testimony and, and, and Nick's testimony and all this stuff. Can she not do these things anymore? I was kind of confused about that. Like, why was she throwing couches and everything else before and controlling fire and all this other stuff? And now it's a big deal that she moved a coin. So that was confusing to me, but I think it's sort of explained. Uh, even like I said, her subdued, um, the difference between her character then and now, I think everything about her is dialed back and her powers included. Now, in a highly questionable move, they added Creighton Duke to the film. He's the mushroom man, you know, he's uh, the, the chemist, a doctor, all that stuff. I'm not sure how that ties back into his character for Jason Goes to Hell. I was never that passionate about that movie enough to deep dive into that character. So maybe it does relate to that character in Jason Goes to Hell, and I just don't know it. He's actually not bad in this film, despite his association with Jason Goes to Hell. It's a totally different look at the character and doesn't really put you in the Jason Goes to Hell headspace. I'm not even 100% sure Creighton Duke is what I hated about Jason Goes to Hell. I, I hate it, but pulling him out of that entire movie uh, and just seeing his uh, whole arc here and everything, I, I didn't mind um, any of that. And I guess it's cool to uh, take useful characters from not so good movies and do something better with them. So that was an interesting choice. So the black op unit uh, shows up. Peter Anthony is the uh, general in this movie. So he, he wrote, uh, stars in, and directed this movie. So they wheel in this little girl, Rose. I definitely became confused as to why she was wheeled in like Garland Green from Con Air. But then later on, she's able to be up and about like Tina, like in the rec room and everything else. I didn't understand that. I know they mentioned something about subduing her or something along those lines and the drugs and the serums having something to do with it. I might have missed it even on my second watch. I think I was more focused on the Michael Myers aspect of my second watch and tying everything together like that. I found one thing really interesting with the Duke character. Uh, after he gets done talking to the doctor, he calls his wife and he asks how their son is doing and if he can talk to him. And she says he's busy and he's boxing. Now, I think that's an indication that Duke is the father of Julius from Friday the 13th Part 8, Jason Takes Manhattan. And that's why... He becomes so hell-bent on Jason in the future because now it's personal. So we get to a confrontation with the General and Duke. It was good stuff. I like the little nuances that Peter adds to his character, like the looks he gives, the delivery of certain lines, how you expect him to erupt at somebody for asking a certain question and instead he's, 
he's calm about it. Like, it's just different. You expected some, like, over-the-top performance, I guess, just from his whole demeanor and who he is in the movie and how he's the, you know, he's the head honcho and all that. Like, you expect that something different, but he plays it in a cooler way. So I really did appreciate that. To me, that adds, it adds depth to his character. Duke's character has a lot of energy in this movie, which is good. So they pepper things throughout this movie, a ton of uh, Easter eggs, pictures of Tina's dad and her mom. You hear audio clips from part seven as like things playing in her head. Earlier on, when Tina is talking to Dr. Cruz and the camera pans around the room and, you know, everything's on the wall back there, that is the exact stuff that's in Dr. Cruz's office. Everything identical to Friday the 13th Part 7. I mean, that's crazy attention to detail. That's the kind of stuff that you know it's a real fan making this kind of stuff, you know? Tina then meets Fast, the uh, strike team. So the goal is to subdue Jason, and research and development would study his regeneration capabilities, totally an homage to Jason X. But I'm not sure how they knew he was uh, able to have these regeneration capabilities based on anything that Tina or anything from Nick's testimony. Uh, They wouldn't know that. So I guess you just put the pieces together yourself and you got to figure out that or you got to figure that um, they knew it was Jason. She said he was from, you know, the lake. And I'm sure somebody must know, although why would Jason be at the bottom of the lake if anybody in authority knew that? Um, So I don't know how they would even put it together that that was Jason. There's like, but this this isn't the fault of this movie, believe me. This whole franchise is convoluted. I mean, even we're going to get to the dad being in the lake from part seven. I went into a whole thing, our our show uh, back in... April of 2012, we did a Friday the 13th Part 7 show, and I went like a madman about Tina's father still being in that lake and jumping out and pulling Jason down there. How many years later? Uh, Absolutely preposterous. But in this movie, when you see the hand holding Jason's leg, you assume it's the hand of her father, and it gets released, you know, later on. That is them having fun with this you know, because that's what they did. So, okay, I guess that's what we're working with, you know. But I did give a couple theories as to how that part seven ending is not what it appears to be. So I'll get into that later on in this review. So I like the classic 80s introduction of all the members of the strike team. Like that whole thing, going to each person and like building them up. Like he's the best of the best. This guy, you know, blah, blah, blah. He'll make someone look like, you know, Pee Wee Herman, you know, like that kind of thing. Like that is so 80s and fits right into what they're going for here. They built like some kind of Jason wall, like a not a shrine, but like a whole thing where it's like his original mask from part seven and all the weapons he used to kill everybody in part seven. Even though we didn't get to see any of those kills because they were edited the fuck out. But OK, you know, I, he supposedly used those weapons, I think. So Tina chokes out Sanchez without making contact, basically like Star Wars. What baffles me is why nobody thought that was amazing, but they were so big on this coin thing sliding across the table. Wouldn't that be a little more interesting to everybody and prove what they're trying that what they're hoping for from Tina? Wouldn't that have done it? 
as opposed to just the coin sliding across the table, so that I didn't understand exactly. So there's a video of Rose accidentally killing her parents in a graphic way. Now, only if you watch this movie two times can you put all this together. What they watched on that screen was the manifestation of Michael Myers. He appeared in Rose's house by her will, in her dreams though. You know, not she didn't want to do this. It was in her dreams that it all happened. It was not a controllable situation. And Michael Myers just ripped the parents apart with a kitchen knife, presumably, or whatever. That's what happened there. That's what you didn't see. And I'll get more into that later. So when I talked about Tina's demeanor being a little more subdued in this movie compared to the Tina of Part 7, I think everything is scaled back, including why she can't go all out like she did before in her battle with Jason. I don't know if she exhausted her powers or doesn't know how to use them, if she's not under duress, so she can't figure out how to do this at will, and it's only like a... Uh, how that adrenaline kicks in, you know, like how you can lift a car when you know you're going to die if you don't. And people can lift a car to get their kid out from under the wheel, like that kind of thing. I don't know if that if that's what's happening here or what, but... Nintendo Power Magazine with Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles on the cover. Oh my god, I have that edition. I still have that. Uh, the classic Sonic riff. Like, oh my god. That is the greatest riff of, like, old-school video games. That being in here is amazing. See, in my movie, I put NBA Jam. I got one of those, like, at-home arcades, and I was playing NBA Jam on there because that was my homage to the 80s or whatever, even though my movie took place in 2020. But that just shows I appreciate this stuff and all the video games they have on here. And that girl sucked at playing Sonic. I'm glad that she had some explanation that she was trying to, like, find little spots or whatever because she couldn't even, like, <laughs> run through that loop. And I was like, what is she doing? But, uh, yeah, I guess, I guess she explained it. <laughs> so Tina and Rose have a nice bonding moment at that, at that time. Uh, great writing. It really made me feel like I knew these girls, too. Like, those are those things that, those are the scenes where, you know, you get ties to the viewer and, like you are there with both of them and now you're invested. Stuff like that. Really good writing. Really good writing. They had the handheld crappy games and the crystal ball, eight ball thing. And then we get to the greatest scene ever where these dudes are trading Garbage Pail Kids with each other. You won't know that unless you really know Garbage Pail Kids from those names, but and they only showed the backs of the cards. They never showed the front where the big Garbage Pail Kids banner is, but yeah, totally 80s into 90s. Garbage Pail Kids, I have one of the most extensive collections in the world. I have pretty much every Garbage Pail Kid ever created, and I did put Garbage Pail Kids in my Friday the 13th movie also. One's on a refrigerator and one's on the arcade game I was playing, or two are on that one. And, uh, yeah, you gotta have this. This just all goes together. I, I think me and this guy who made this movie have the same sensibilities here. I mean, he even played that Friday the 13th Part 7 song that... Looking for magic in your eyes by FM. That's in my movie, too, during the drive-in scene. <laughs> so, yeah, this is... It's really funny how, like, Friday fans, uh, who care kind of are in sync with each other. So Rose decides to attack the MP with the general because he's like getting in her face and stuff because she made a comment 
Um, not really an equal attack. Uh, the guy who was actually getting in her face, I mean, she just makes him drop his coffee. But the, the general, he gets, like, a drinking glass wailed at his head, and the glass shatters into his eye, and he has to run around in the rest of the movie with an eye patch on. <laughs> I mean, not, not very equal. You would think that she'd hate the guy who got in her face more than the guy who was just standing there with him, but nope. Rose gets taken into a room where she slaughters the shit out of everyone and walks out covered in blood. Or so you think so, right? So here's where we'll go back to what's actually happening here. So if you notice during that scene, right before she walks out of the room and she's covered in blood, if you notice a kitchen knife goes slamming through the door or the wall or whatever coming out into the hallway, that is her manifesting Michael Myers again. So she did it to her parents and then she does it here. Michael is the one who kills everybody. That's why that uh, orderly or whatever runs out of there or the army guy and he, and he says, uh, you know, he has no face. He has no face. He was talking about Michael Myers, just the blank white mask. Even later on when Rose is drawing that picture, she's drawing Michael killing everyone in that room. So she's always able to manifest Michael Myers. Duke then has a scene with the janitor that makes him question his integrity. Duke begins his character arc. He plans to help Tina escape the facility with no well-thought-out plan of any kind. <laughs> I guess he never saw Tango and Cash. The strike team is playing cards, and the chick, Sanchez, uh, ends up losing her hand, and she has to take a shot while swallowing a bullet. Now, I've only seen this in the movie The Crow, which is another uh, amazing coincidence because in my Friday the 13th movie, I also reference The Crow. There's a part where I say, uh, I know you. Yeah, you can't be you, man. You're dead. There ain't no coming back. You know, I did that whole scene that the guy does before he gets launched off the dock and blows up in his car. I did that. So we both also referenced The Crow. I mean, <laughs> this is like amazing. Tina is then playing Super Mario 3. So Duke goes over and attempts to escape with Tina, and they don't get past one goddamn door before he's caught. Duke is locked away in a room. Project Manifest is underway. Both Tina and Rose are strapped to a chair while they get injected with serum, the serum that Duke was working on from the mushrooms he was working on or whatever. So Duke was working on DMT, the spirit molecule. You know, they pointed out that Duke has an Indian background. That's where the whole ayahuasca thing comes into play. Because Indians have knowledge of all that stuff with the mushrooms, and that's why it's great that he's a doctor. Because he knows mushrooms better than anybody. So he's a doctor, he's trying to make the spirit molecule. You know, like you manifest somebody, a different soul, a different spirit. So, like, if you look at his wall, he has bounty hunter stuff all over his wall. So that's what the Duke's whole meaning was, his whole purpose. So, a lot of the things that I've seen in the comments, um, of course, you know, this is one of those things that are going to come up, and I'm sure the filmmakers know this. Jason does not appear until, like, uh, we're at like an hour and three minutes into this movie and still no Jason. As for me, I will be honest, I didn't realize that I have not seen Jason yet until the scene where the girl throws the glass into the guy's head and it shatters into his eye. After that scene, it, it dawned on me that there's no Jason, and then I looked at what time it was. So, that's good. 
that means that I was so invested into this movie that I didn't care that Jason didn't show up yet because I was into this the story's development. I was into the development of the characters. I was into the character studies, which is a good thing. And there are plenty of movies where the killer does not show up until the third act. So this is a throwback to that. So they inject Tina with the serum and she has a vision of Jason's legs in the water with the skeleton grabbing them, presumably her, her father, holding on to Jason's leg and then lets go. Um, now, obviously, that's them being playful with the past of Friday the 13th. They're going with what they were given, right? So what I said when I watched Friday 7 and I did the review in 2012, I said... I could make this work because I think it's the dumbest thing ever that Tina's dad after she knocks over that dock he just he just stays down in Crystal Lake how many years was that 10 15 whatever right so nobody got the body of this man out of the lake in all that time and when they have the battle with Jason he jumps up out of the dock and pulls him down I mean that is the dumbest thing ever right now most people only complain that it didn't look zombified enough. They say, oh, that lady ruined it because they, he looked cool. And then because of her, now it looked like a guy with mud smeared all over him and it looks stupid. That's your only problem with this? You don't care that the cops left his body there? How often does somebody die in a lake and they go, ah, fuck him. And they just drive home and say, yeah, that's where he is. Nobody's asking to get him out of there. Can we bury this guy properly? Like nothing. So, so I said the way that part seven works at the end, that's not her father pulling Jason under at all. That is her telekinetic power that brought the chain up and went around Jason's neck and pulled him down, trapping him back into Crystal Lake. When we see the father, that's just Tina's point of view. That's her kind of making peace with her father and getting closure on her father. That is not actually happening, right? To me, that works. At least if you want to fight that theory, you can fight it on the idea of creativity not stupidity like it would be if we were to believe that her father was actually down there and for whatever reason came back up and did that. How, how, how is what I ask you. So I'm going to go with my theory. But they did not do that in this movie. They went with what was on film. They stuck with whatever, you know, because that's just my interpretation of it. It doesn't mean that's what happened. So they went with what was on screen. So in this movie, I guess her dad is still down there and he's holding on to Jason's foot. So he lets go and you get this cool shot of Jason coming up out of the lake. It looks really beautiful. Uh, looked great, great lighting. He looked cool from the back, all that good stuff. And as far as the movie, I'm not sure how they knew such a specific thing would happen. How did they know? That because she said she thought about her dad and he, Jason came up out of the lake, how did they know that if they shot her with this theorem that those thoughts would happen again and then bring him out of the lake again and bring him to that facility? That's something I'm not sure of, but I might, you know, it might become clear in rewatches. Re I'm sure there's an explanation because the whole movie is banking on it. That's what we're all doing here. So there must be an explanation of how they knew for sure that all this would happen. 
But you would think if they read all those files on Tina and Nick and their testimonies that they would know where to find Jason. So it's 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 interesting I how you definitely you have to rewatch this a couple times I think to put this all together. But I think when you do it really pays off because my mind was blown just on the Michael Myers manifestation throughout the entire movie thing. Jason infiltrates the facility and makes short work of those strikers. Uh, so Jason looks pretty good, um, but the whole rib cage thing, I think would have worked better if the actor playing him was 30 to 40 pounds lighter. For something like this, the bones definitely looked like they were on top of clothing or whatever. They, it didn't appear as if they were inside of his body and you're looking in at the body of Jason. It, it definitely looked like these are worn on top of a regular person. So, like, I think if they had, like, a skinnier person playing Jason or something like that, that I think that effect would have definitely worked better. Or if, like, the, the bone part was totally strapped and, like, tied tight to this guy's body, still he would have to lose weight, but tied to his body tight. I think the illusion, and it just would have come off a little bit better. Um, as for the performance of Jason, I was hoping for more Kane-isms, uh, to be honest. Like, I think Kane would be pretty easy to channel when you're wearing that whole getup. Uh, we've all been watching these movies for 30 years, you know? So I was hoping for more of those familiar movements, I guess, from Jason. The kills were well done, intriguing enough, creative enough, nice gore, especially on Sanchez's kill. Number one, we all got robbed of the Cruise kill in the original part seven. We don't really get to see Jason buzz that dude's stomach open. So to see him actually saw this girl in half, um, it was an interesting shot too. It was like this one wacky shot of like her body being really sawed in half. Um, it was a really quick glimpse too, so you couldn't really take it all in, which is probably better, you know? Um, and then you get to this angle, it's like from the floor, and the body is there, I guess, so she fell back or whatever, and then the rest of her guts fall towards the camera on the floor, and then the last thing to fall is the bullet that was in her intestines. It's like, clink, 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 and it like, <laughs> right into the camera. Amazing. Great idea. Another great nod to uh, Friday 7 that they put in when the guy was in the room, and he was like between the wall and Jason was on the other side of the wall and he like picks up the horn that the Jason rammed into the black chick's ear in Friday's or her eye in Friday seven. <laughs> that was funny that they put that in there. And then how he was on the one side of the wall and Jason was on the other side and Jason's side was like blue, like the lightning when Maddie was on the one side of the wall and Jason was on the other side when she was uh, hiding in the in the barn after she was looking for her earring. So that was like an amazing little nod that you really love to catch stuff like that. The MP holding the suitcase with, and it's like handcuffed to him. And then Jason pulls the suitcase away from him and the skin of his hand goes with it. Unbelievably epic. I was waiting for him to be like, you son of a bitch, that's my jerk off hand. But uh, yeah, great nonetheless. Um, just awesome right there. The general gets his uh, one good eye gouged out, which is another cool tie into my movie. In my movie, somebody gets their eyes gouged out. So uh, not nearly. I had no budget, guys. You gotta remember that. So it's not as cool looking as this, but I did have someone get both eyeballs gouged out, and you do get to see the eyeballs hit the floor. So Jason goes after the two girls. Rose 
turns on her shit and controls Jason. He, she totally has him like stopped in his tracks. And then she manifests Michael Myers in the background. And if you remember, she only had one eye that was red when she was combing her hair. And then she like stabs herself with that serum. And then both of her eyes are red during this scene. So now she has complete control. So Rose tries to send them back. She doesn't send them back anywhere in particular, and you think it's over, and then you see the knife going through her, and you think it's Michael, but it's Jason. And it flips back to present day. And you see Tina in a room, and, you know, this guy's coaxing her with an orderly, and you see on her arm, like, how her veins are all whacked out, because the shot basically is at this point killing her. Now, she is as strong as Rose was back then. So Tina was about half as strong as Rose was while Rose was alive in 1988. Now Tina, because of the shots and everything else, she's full-fledged at this point, and now she has the ultimate powers, and it's all with these shots and the veins in her arms. So now, even without this shot, you know, she has the one red eye like Rose had, and her arms are like rotting from all the shots and the veins. But, you know, she gets the itchy arm when the orderly's going in her face and she brings Jason back because now she can do that even without the shot she wants to send him away now to hell and that's what that is when the wall opens up that's the devil going no you know and she's sending him to hell she was gonna look like she was gonna have a confrontation with him but then when Nick showed up she just wanted to hurry up and get rid of him so that's that whole vortex that you see but yeah Nick shows up the guy from part 7 he shows up they're still in love after all these years and who knows what kind of time apart or whatever. I mean, that guy just doesn't listen, right? Like, can you imagine in part seven, a men someone tells you they're a mental patient, they're in a mental institution, you should stay away from me. And this guy does not take the hint. She's waving a red flag in your face. She's breaking it over your head. And you still pursue this chick as if she was like J-Lo or something. Like, is she that hot? That you're just going to say, no, it's okay if you're crazy. Look at you. Like, or whatever. Like, what in the world is attracting this guy to this girl at that point? It's like, dude. And then 30 years later, after all the crap they've been through and she's locked away and everything else, he's still carrying the torch for her. Amazing. And you also get that amazing recreation of the part seven, like the mask tightening around Jason's head and that like goo coming out. They match that like perfectly in this movie. Just really well done. And if you keep the movie on past the end credits, you'll see the Tom Savini Jason. Uh, what that means is if you have the video game, you'll know that there was a bonus Jason design. And it's like the go Jason go to hell Jason where he's like all black. And that's at the end of this movie, too. So there will be a part two where Jason starts off in hell, I assume. I'll say, I'll be honest, a lot of Friday fan films have disappointed me, which is why I went out and shot my own. Well, I, I didn't even really mean to, but it just kept, it was like an organic thing. Like, first we did this, then we did that, then we did this. And we're like, so are we making a real movie or what? So we just kept going. And I guess by the time I was willing to release it to the public, my thought was, well, let me show people that it doesn't take any money to put something together that's at least 
appealing to a Friday fan and that will at least give you semi, like a mild form of entertainment for an hour or whatever. You know, so that's what my movie was. It wasn't meant to blow anybody away or to say, hey, this is the greatest thing or this is better than all the ones that people pay for or anything like that. Like, it was just to show that no matter how much money you have, it doesn't matter if it's in the wrong hand. That was really my point. This is an example of those donations and all the crowdfunding. That would have all been a waste of money. But it was in the right hands. Peter Anthony did something pretty incredible here. Making a half-assed movie myself, I could tell you that what he did in eight days, <laughs> all the planning that must have took, all the organization, all of the, the studying of the scripts and everything else that you have to come on, keep moving, keep moving. We have no time for this. We have no, you know, a lot of special effects. I mean, a lot. One of those effects might have taken three days in a, in a, a normal movie setting, you know, like here it had to take three hours, you know, it was just a lot of prep, a really well done script. I was engaged the whole time. It was interesting the whole time. And I liked the characters. I liked, I liked a guy from Jason goes to hell. What does that tell you? I mean, that again tells you that in the right hands, even a character doesn't suck. I give this movie a 4 out of 5. I really like it. If a lot of you don't know, my Netflix, I do Netflix ratings. So 1 hated it, 2 didn't like it, 3 liked it, 4 really liked it, and 5 loved it. I'm, I'm probably going to end up more in the 4.5 range uh, really soon. I mean, and I do love it for what it is. It's a fan film. $50,000 fan film. And to me, this is better than... Jason Goes to Hell and Jason X and the remake. The remake had its moments, and it was cool, but this is more interesting to me. And uh, I definitely, I, I will watch this after I watch part seven. I feel like, you know, I watch part seven probably once every three years, and I'll definitely put this on right after it, you know? Like, it's a nice addition to that. It works. To me, this works. I see a lot of care, a lot of thought, and a lot of love put into this. I thought this was good. I finally think that we found the guy who should be doing these Friday fan films. There's a lot of people involved in this. This was a real thing. Real effort. Real stuff. And it was really good. So, great job. My hat's off to all you guys. That was Friday the 13th, Rose Blood. Hope you enjoyed.